The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is part of our Anzac Day special series. We've taken a look at some of the Australian entertainers that performed for the troops. However, this episode isn't about someone who played music for the soldiers. It's about the chart-topping Aussie musician who found himself conscripted into the army and was now a soldier in the Vietnam War. We speak to Australia's King of Pop, Normie Rowe. After a string of number one hits in Australia, Normie was living in the UK and was on his way to becoming as big in England as he was at home. His record label was spending bucket loads of pounds on promotion and his session musicians included drummer John Paul Jones and guitar god Jimmy Page from the legendary British band Led Zeppelin. Interviewing Normie is producer of awesome Aussie songs, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. I had to come back to Australia. I just, for a start, I, I was... I was homesick, and but apart from that, I had to come home from Australia to Australia because of this this thing, this national service thing. And uh, had I known the way it played out, I probably would not have come. But then you can't you you can't see into the future, you know. So I came back. We and do, it must we, have been a hard decision for you to make because, as, as I said, with Polydor. You're playing with the big boys now, and you're they the marketing campaign that they put behind you on the side of buses. You know you've mm. got ads in all the major magazines. It was it was a time where it goes to show that with your your national service, you you contributed a lot as a as a young bloke chasing his dreams. Well, it was a it was a big decision to make. Yeah, well, as I said, I thought I was coming back. You know. Um, but uh, that wasn't to be, of course, and eventually I was called up and it wasn't until decades later that I found that I had been basically press-ganged uh, into the military. When we say that, how you were, you were press-ganged in there, you also had the choice to become a, a, a musician in the army band or be a soldier. You chose to be a soldier, so yep. you, didn't, you didn't take the easy way out, either. Yeah, well, that's the way I felt about it too. I mean, basically... Um, I didn't want my notoriety to get me anything uh, that the the regular digger was was uh, wasn't getting. You know, I I that's the way I saw it. You know, a couple of times there were there were moments there when I thought, you know, I, I w- I'd been treated pretty badly by by various people. 
you know, because I was Normie Rowe and I wasn't going to put up with it. And I, I went and I sorted it out. And I, I said, if you, don't, if you don't fix this, this problem that is your problem and it's not my problem, if you don't fix this, I'm going to write to my parents with copies to all the newspapers about the bastardisation taking place. And I'm sure you won't like that. So they solved the problem, you know. But I didn't ask for anything more than or more than any of the other diggers were getting. It's just my opinion. It just wasn't right, you know. Well, the the pop star to to soldier thing has a Hollywood romance about it, but there was no Hollywood romance for you. If you you look at stage shows or musicals like Bye Bye Birdie, you're living that uh, that scenario. But but once you you're in Vietnam, it's it's a war zone, and and people are trying to kill you, and yeah. it's it's not a place where the fate hearted. And you've spoken many times about PTSD, and how living in a war zone just frays your nerves. Well, it's it's not so much that they fray your nerves. It's it's more that. Um you know, subconsciously, you're in a state of mind where at any moment you could lose your life. Uh, and and so most of the disturbances, I guess, are deep down, you know, like I said, in your subconscious. In the meantime, your your conscious mind is constantly aware of your training, what you're looking for, what you're listening for, uh, where you're traveling, where you're going. I mean, for us, we were on vehicles. We could travel a kilometer in a flash, you know, um, and it happened a number of times, especially one one particular time where we'd moved a 1,000 meters, one kilometer through the jungle um, from our last uh, location status that we'd given uh, back to the fire support base. And then we got into a contact and... and uh, the the general rule was that the artillery would pump around a kilometre from your last location status. We'd moved a thousand, or we'd moved a kilometre, and the round landed right next to me and sprayed up all the side of the APC that I was in. And uh, how the hell I wasn't actually hit by any of the shrap, I'm stuffed if I know. I, I have no idea, but it was it just wasn't my day that day. And I, we were receiving small arms fires, submachine guns and, and RPG fire and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and artillery shells from our own artillery, you know. So, so, but you had to be totally aware of what was going on uh, and, and to be able to use... The, all the things that were available to us, you know, being able to call in artillery. And if you ever get a chance to go and see Danger Close, the Battle of Long Tan, you'll get an idea of exactly what it was like. Um, for us, nowhere near, for well, for me anyway, nowhere near what the D Company 6 Ra and, and the, other, the other elements that were with them on that day the uh, 18th of August, 1966. But, but um, uh, you know, in general, that's the way it was in Vietnam, you know. Uh, for most of the people, there were a lot of people who only spent time on base and, and they needed to be there because we needed to know that there were people back there who were across what we were doing, you know. I mean, it was a total team thing and everybody had an important job. For one man right out in the field in what they called the sharp end, it took seven people to keep him there. Well, as a soldier, did you ever have any moments of 
you know, in, in a quiet time of reflection, thinking, my God, I've just gone from a few years before being almost, as we said, this Beatlemania, this this frenzy. You, you lived a life that few people could imagine in Australia, and then you're living the life of a soldier that people really don't want to imagine you have in to, Vietnam. You have to understand that... For me, there was 12 months between the time I went into the army and the time I went to Vietnam. Uh, and subsequently, those uh, lines of thought had taken place in Australia and it was a much softer situation. By the time, uh, by the time my mates and I were, were on a plane and going to Vietnam, we were very highly trained. Uh, very, very uh, highly cross-trained. We could do. We could play the role of an infantry soldier. We could play the role of a crew commander or a driver or a, um, a gunner, a machine gunner, or all sorts of stuff. We were very highly trained. So, and and that training was what took up most of our uh, waking moments. You know, in in the first twelve months that we were there, anyway, in the army, and then. When we arrived, uh, <laughs> our eyes went from normal eye size to the size of dinner plates for the first, probably the first uh, five or six weeks. And then we started to settle into the re regime and understand what it was all about and the surroundings, the, the, the foliage and the, the sort of things that, that we, we were trained to look for and we started to find the things that we were looking for, things like tracks and and looking through trees and all sorts of other stuff that become uh, skills of of a trained Australian soldier. There's a lot of Australian entertainers coming over. How did you feel seeing? Obviously, you're seeing your friends, but did that sort of did it make it a little bit harder seeing seeing what you were up on stage? Or I saw one show. Okay. Yep. Um, and was that by choice or just that's the way no, it was? No, it's just that we just we, – we spent most of our time in the J, in the jungle, our unit. Um, we, we might be in the Dat, Nui Dat for, for uh, three or four weeks or whatever, but it was always head down, bum up, cleaning, um, maintaining, stripping down the vehicles and then putting them all back together again, making sure all the, the – uh, you know the armament was the right way around. Make sure that we'd had good meals in in uh, in Nui Dat because we, uh, unlike the unlike the uh, the infantry guys, they 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 ate quite meagerly. We we did pretty well, but it was still wasn't the same as eating in Nui Dat. Um, and uh, so with one. One um, Australian show coming in, I think, per month or every six weeks, uh, the crossover was – the likelihood of us actually seeing a show was very low. Uh, we saw one or two oh, Vietnamese shows down in, uh, in uh, Vung Tau, but uh, we were uh, – we just didn't see much in the way of shows. And, and one of them was, uh, funnily enough – was a there was a a, a group of people um, uh, came uh, came in from Sydney and one of the members was the father-in-law of of my drummer Graham Trotman, but 
Trotter wasn't married yet at that stage. So, I, you know, I just remember Eddie being there, you know, and I, I've been looking at photos over the last couple of days that I'd never seen before of of that particular event, of him actually being in, in Vietnam. You know, so I didn't really have... You know, I was asked to come in and, and have photos taken with Johnny O'Keefe, but I couldn't bring myself to fly in um, because uh, there was, oh, you jump in a helicopter and go go in and say, have photos taken with Johnny O'Keefe. And I just, you know, that's not what I was there for. I was there to be a bloody soldier, fellas. And I said I said to the um, task force commander, the Brigadier, um, uh, Brigadier Pearson, I said, sir, uh, I just want to put this to you. I, I would like to say no. I, I, if it's an order, I'll go, but I'd like to say no. Uh, he said, no, no, it's not an order. And I said, well, I'll explain you, to you my position. If I left the fire base and my carrier in the charge of somebody else and I went in and had my photos taken, had a good meal, have a shower in the dad, blah, 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 and come back the next day. In the meantime, my carrier hits a mine or a cops an RPG and my crew was killed. I don't think I could live with that for the rest of my life. And uh, he said, then you don't need to go. If you don't want to go, you don't need to go. And he said that was admirable. But but I, it's just, I, I couldn't bring myself to do it, you know. So your role in Vietnam was as the driver of an RPG, which is like a, a <laughs> tank. Is that right? No, 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 no. an APC, not an RPG. Okay. okay. <laughs> so an RPG is a rocket-propelled grenade. Well, you like lucky you didn't want to be riding one of those. They, that was the other guy, uh, an armoured personnel carrier, an APC. I started off driving for two months, four months as the uh, the. the, the troop leader's radio operator so I'd be in in the troop leader's vehicle for four months running the radio communications for for uh, our for our troop uh, so I think I had five radios that I had to monitor and and do all that and get infant information across to my boss who was in the turret uh, and then I took over my own vehicle as crew commander and I spent six months as crew commander and, and lead vehicle um, for the rest of that period of time, and and basically the senior corporal uh, in in that uh, in that troop. You and your fellow soldiers in Vietnam saw things during your service that no man or woman should ever see. People from my generation just you, you, we can't imagine, or we don't want to imagine what you you guys went through. It's it's common knowledge that you guys were treated poorly when you came back home, um, but it didn't ha- it didn't start so poorly for you. Your first night back in, you uh, you thought things are, things are going to look all right here because you've gone to the uh, they sent you to the uh, Sheraton Wentworth Ampol uh, Ampol Few Company books out the uh, the presidential suite, and uh, it's a night to remember. Your first night home, yeah, it was pretty good. It was. I mean, we were pretty buggered by the time we got back. It was long flights, you know. Had to come back down through Darwin and all that sort of stuff. So, but um, we came back and and uh, I met the CEO of uh, Ampol and his two daughters uh, at the airport. So he'd had some connection. In, he, in fact, I found out later his connection was with Legacy and I'd done some uh, promotion filming uh, in Vietnam is the only thing I wanted. I was happy to do because I think Legacy has always done a marvelous job. Uh, and he he found out when I was coming in. He he went out to see me with his daughters, introduced me, and then he said, 
I'm glad you're home. Welcome home. If you like, you know, I think it was something like that he said. And he said, what are you doing now? And I said, oh, the boys and I are going to go down to the uh, the Sheraton and, uh, uh, and, and book a room and have perhaps have a few drinks and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, right, okay. He gave me his card. Uh, and I, uh, we arrived by taxi to the uh, Sheraton and walked in and the concierge, um, uh, the commissionaire, came up and said, Mr Rowe? And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, oh, we've been expecting you. Come this way. So he gave us the keys to this room. We went up and there was... the. the the presidential suite was sitting, whatever the suite, the big suite was there. And uh, we walked in and there was this magnificent display of good Australian food and some beers and stuff like that, you know. And, and it, was, it, it was pretty amazing. Um, I sort of felt guilty that it wasn't happening for everybody, you know. So he had uh, um, organised this and... Uh, you know, I don't think I ever saw him again, which was a great shame. You know? And then the next day, of course, we headed back out to Essendon, uh, out to uh, Mascot Airport, and got on a plane, flew back into Essendon, and it was home. And that night, one of my mates who'd come home a bit earlier, Timmy, uh, phoned up and said, I'm going to a party tonight, do you want to go to a party? And I said to Mum, would you, do you, would you mind if I go to a party I know I've only just arrived home she said you've been in Vietnam all this year this 12 months you can go and do whatever you want to do so I went <laughs> and I met the girl who became my first wife <laughs> caught me at a weak moment <laughs> <laughs> so your first first two days back in Australia were eventful <laughs> so what happens to you has happened to a lot of lot of musicians or pop stars or rock stars or just just your run-of-the-mill musicians Bad management or devious management meant that all of a sudden you're throwing a $100,000 tax bill by the ATO, money that you've never received, money you never, you never spent, but all of a sudden you're now, you're, you've got this albatross around your neck of a hundred grand. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I went off to a solicitor and he was a lovely old man and he worked it out, worked out some deals with the ATO. This was before I actually went into the army. Okay. And... Um, or went to Vietnam uh, and then he worked it out and then I ended up what was left for me to pay after it was all sorted pretty much sorted out was I, I think it was twenty seven thirty thousand dollars or something like that that I had to pay off and I paid it out of military out of my my army pay so while the, the other guys were having beers and stuff I didn't drink I didn't didn't do you know I, I didn't buy stuff uh, I didn't buy anything duty-free or anything like that. A couple of little bits and pieces. A watch, I think, I bought and perhaps a tape recorder. But uh, by the time I got home, I'd paid my debt off and that was all there was to it. Uh, after that, I didn't know what I was going to be doing and I, you know, I did a show on the 1st of Feb, 1970. I, I bombed, personally. I, I went down like a, a lead balloon. That was with Zoot. Uh, yeah, your support. Zoot was uh, was on stage. I th I think I was probably the support. The, they were so popular by this time. Um, Daryl Cotton and B. Birdles, um, Rick Springfield. You know, they they were terrific man, and and they had the beginnings of the glam rock thing, which I I never was. 
So I just sort of looked at that and said, well, it's over for me, you know, a year in, in England, six months on the, on the road out in the bush, two years in the army. I've basically been out of circulation for, you know, like three years. It was a, big, a long time in pop music. And, um, and so uh, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I, I did one show with the Australian army band Melbourne, uh, as it's called today, uh, in uh, the Melbourne Town Hall. And it was produced by, by Athel Guy from The Seekers and a couple of other people, well known, using the young Australians. And he said, what are you doing with your career, with your life? And I said, I don't know. I'd probably I'd, I'd give up. I'd probably go and get a job. And he said, what? You can't be doing that. Because I lived in Athol's place in London. So he and... And uh, you are Normie Rowe. <laughs> That's, I'm sure you're not feeling it, but other people are looking at you going, you're Normie Rowe. You're, as I said before, you're one of the greatest voices ever recorded in yeah, Australia. But, but See, I, from my point of view... Uh, I've never been Normie Rowe. I, I, there's, it's always been sort of, it's, it's been uh, a, 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 sort of a riddle to me. There's, there's this Normie Rowe and there's me, you know. And But um, in the meantime, I uh, I said, I don't know what I want to do. And they said, well, look, you know, you you came back from England and you were really polished and everything, you, know, you had looking great and everything. Why don't we put you into clubs in New South Wales? Well, it's something I'd never wanted to do. I didn't want to ever work in a venue where they sold alcohol because I'd never done that before. Anyway, I was there. I was there for 25 years working in clubs, and uh, I became what I thought of as a um, uh, as a cabaret hack. And it wasn't until I was just uh, reaching 30 and I realised that I was going to have to do a lot more than what I'd done in the past. Well, that was a, a time where, and you know, it's it's history now that, as we said, the, the Vietnam veterans were just treated terribly. Like I, I said, somebody from my generation, it's like, how did this happen? And, and how did this happen in the last 20 or 30 years sort of thing? So it was it was bizarre to me. I would have been about 16 or 17 when, when the Welcome Home Parade took place. And as I said, from, from my generation, it's like, what these guys weren't treated the same as the diggers from the first and second world war because to people like me you're all one and the same you're people that have that have defended our country and and some these some of these soldiers have, have given the ultimate sacrifice mm. and to think that there was people that were treating you guys terribly it's as i said it's the mind boggles especially in this day and age of social media or whatever these people would have been you know brought to heal pretty pretty quickly but they weren't and unfortunately you know the 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 sadness or the depression that you soldiers had to go through because of this as i said it's it's bizarre and i don't think you know if you guys had have had your anzac days previously to that it would have helped your your journey to to enjoy your life again because as I said I, I can't even imagine being in your shoes to think what you've seen what you went through even as I was saying the Rajas were saying they they were just a band no, sorry I shouldn't say that Leon but they were a band and they um they were in a taxi back in Australia and the taxi backfired and they were on the ground and the taxi driver's going like what's going on mm. what they seen would have been minuscule to what you you know you no, and your fellow soldiers 
not necessarily. And a I'm lot, not a lot of the entertainers yeah. who went, especially the ones who went to work for the Americans, they they saw a, a, a bit of action, but they didn't carry a bloody gun. Bugger that. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is that, um, uh, you know, at the, at, at the end of the Second World War, the people who came back from that were treated badly by the First World War veterans. Oh, really? Okay. And then when the Korean War finished, it wasn't really a war to the Second World War veterans, so they were treated bad. I think they probably treated at least as poorly or even more so than we were uh, because it's quite uh, quite frequently known as the forgotten war and i my heart goes out to to those guys but and girls of course i'm sorry girls um but uh there were there were elements of society who were dead set against the the war and they didn't know where to place their their anger or their their um, displeasure uh, other than poking it straight at the, the, the guys who'd served, you know, and, and we had two choices. We'd go to jail or we go into the army. <laughs> you know, not much of a choice. No, there know? wasn't. Uh, and unlike in America where we could sort of wander off and go up through, through uh, into Canada uh, as a, da- a dodge, uh, draft dodger, we couldn't, there was none of that. Indonesia know. wasn't taking you, that's no, for sure. No, And besides, that's even closer to Vietnam. <laughs> So, you know, um, and, and it's really not an Australian thing to do is to, to sort of bug out when your mates are fighting, you know, you just stay there with them. Well, Australia proves that you guys are, are respected and, and loved and, and thanked as much as any other serviceman to ever, ever pull on the slouch hat. Well, it's come on. It's, it's changed a lot. Uh, it, the, the, I, I have to say that the biggest amount of thanks that we could ever have uh, would need to go to John Schumann and Redgum for recording and, and releasing I Was Only 19 because it was at that moment which created for the, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole nation an aha moment. It's sort of like, aha, oh dear, oh, what have we done, you know? And I remember at the beginning of the Welcome Home Parade, because I was on the committee for the, for the organisation of that, and I was talking to the, um, the chairman, and uh, I said, Pete, suppose we gave a Welcome Home and nobody came. And that was walking up to the Forming Up place. We'd walked up past the Mitchell Library and down into the... And it wasn't until we came over the rise and we looked down and, and Peter and I looked at each other and started crying. <laughs> it was amazing. Half a million and then we people. thought, then we thought, okay, so at the very... There's a lot of people marching today. It, at the very least, it's going to cause some traffic jams. Well, we weren't prepared for what was along the sides of the road. Uh, the tears were flowing like crazy right through, through the whole uh, march route, and it was just uh, just an amazing thing. I have to p- state for the record that we received, um, we'd sent an invitation to the prime minister of the day, who happened to be uh, uh, R.J.L. Hawke, 
and we we said you know we would like your present and be you know the the head honcho and uh we got a message back saying oh look um we wish you all the best but uh, mr hawk doesn't get involved in any of these sorts of things well when it was read out at the the general meeting at which present there would have been probably 150 delegates it just erupted into it's almost like erupted into violence that people were going to go and do something and so and and there was yelling out and well, he's the commander-in-chief yeah to, to use american term he's the commander-in-chief isn't he so so i ended up standing on this french polished table at in the Congress Hall of, uh, of Anzac House in, in Sydney. I uh, stood up there and I said, uh, I whistled, because I got a r- r- loud whistle, and I whistled and I, I said, wait, wait, wait. And I s- said, look, I know, I know what our skills are. I know what we could do, but we could win this. Why don't we just, in spite of what's just been read out, why don't we just make it successful? And after all, have you ever seen Bob Hawke absent from a grand final yet? Two days before the welcome home, we get a message from uh, the Prime Minister's office. Oh, Mr Hawke has been able to clear his... It was basically, publicly, it was a fait accompli. This was going to be a huge thing. Two days before... Message came through, Mr. Hawke has been able to clear his deck and would love to be there. So he turned up, you know, cynical politicians once again, turned up, was up there next, and, you know, he was taking the salute. Every unit that came back had to do the eyes right. And I can't tell you that that the gutter in front of him would have been flowing with spittle. Right, yeah. The way they felt about Bob Hawke. And then uh, I don't think things have really changed over the years as far as the Vietnam veterans were concerned because it was a terrible thing to do, you know. Um, these these guys, I, I saw so much emotion uh, that had been, been held down. I've got so many anecdotes about about how people got to the Welcome Home Parade and why they were there and... And that they didn't even know they were going there because their wives basically brought them into into a town and dropped them off to their mates with a with a bag for the weekend <laughs> and say and said, "Yeah, go and go and enjoy yourself." You know, um, that sort of thing was a, was a very common thing. You know, and there were all sorts of stories. So it was a very, very important thing. It won, uh, eventually, while he was still Prime Minister, it won the national event of the year. Uh, it was handed out at Kirribilli House. Um, very interesting. <laughs> there were 11 of us invited. Ten of us were invited up on the stage and I was left there <laughs> at the table. I wasn't invited. Thanks very much, Bob. <laughs> it doesn't help me appreciate you anymore. So I looked around and I thought, ah, this is crazy. And I, I got on my phone, booked the uh, water taxi and went over to Fairstar where all my real mates were. And I spent the rest of the day on, on Australia Day with them. Your song Missing in Action is a very moving song. You, you mentioned about Red Gum. And, and only 19, but I think Missing in Action is also a, a song that 
grabs grabs you by the heart. Well, missing in action was uh, sitting in my um, really in my uh, uh, basically my heart for a long time because I'd seen so many people who had come home. And it was, I think it was triggered by one particular situation where the guy had come home and, uh, and couldn't handle being home for whatever reason and then left. And then when the Welcome Home Parade came, came up, he arrived back on the doorstep. His wife, who'd wondered where he went, had since died and his daughter answered the phone. He said, I'm really sorry, I'm now home. And that story is basically the story of, uh, a part of the story of, of the character portrayed in Missing in Action. Uh, and the fact that, you know, true forgiveness or true love, if you like, doesn't go away over whatever years that it might take once you get to understand that... Uh, uh, that you you um, you probably should have been back there in the first place, you know. Well, I think too, and and I'm, I'm probably guilty of this as well. We seem to to forget the the other side of what happens when when people go to war and and soldiers is their loved ones and their family suffer back home as oh, well. Terribly, terribly. I think my dad eventually died of heart attack in '73. Um, and I think the stress put on him while I was in Vietnam was was a big part of his his health demise. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, as a father, I couldn't imagine my son. No, me either. My son actually was was toying with the idea of going in the army, and I, <laughs> I would never stop him. I would never say no, you're not going. But but I was I was always I was hoping that he would find something else to do. <laughs> Well, there's not a lot of funny stuff that happens when it comes to war and people's war service, but one story that made me laugh is uh, how the Russian government used your pop star to soldier story as their wartime propaganda. <laughs> Who would have known that Normie Rowe was uh, famous behind the Russian Iron Curtain? Yes, it was an interesting thing. Um, Michael Edgeley's uh, senior's uh, uh, go-to man, was Jack Neary, and he went to Russia to book uh, the Bolshoi Ballet or the Moscow Circus or something like that. And they, their uh, arts atta- um, arts uh, commissar or whatever he was called, uh, took him to see this play. And uh, there was th- this this person dressed in a military uniform made out of newsprint. It wasn't paper, but it was all print, right? And uh, it was, and they kept chanting, "No me low, no me low, no me low," right? <laughs> and then they they lifted this character up, and I think they they ended up, uh, oh, I don't know, he ended up dead on the on the. Now I've died a number of times on stage, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and Jack asked about it, and he said, and this guy said, "Oh, you should know. This is uh, your your newspaper hero. All the press made him into a newspaper, and then he, your country sent him off to war. And, and the glorious fighters of the North Vietnamese uh, army killed him." And he said, "Oh, right. Well, a lot of that's right, but Norm's still alive." <laughs> <laughs> so, 
But that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, oh, it's crazy. I to... made it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. One classic song that came out of out of you going to Vietnam is the Ronnie Burns song Smiley. How do you feel when you hear that song? Well, um, I was doing a radio program in... Where was I? In Sydney at 2CH. And I was uh, interviewing Johnny Young. And uh, 
I said, and you've, re- you've written, you had this wonderful recording career, uh, then you, and, and later you had this wonderful career on television with Young Talent Time, but in between you, you were writing a lot of songs for a lot of artists. And he said, well, you know uh, Smiley? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I wrote that about you. And I said, really? He said, did you not know? And I said, well, I, th- I, I thought it might have been a bit big-headed of me to think that it might have been, but, but it seemed to have some sort of a synergy there. Um, and uh, he said, well, Ronnie came to me and he said, I want a song about the Vietnam War. And he said, the only experience I ever had about the Vietnam War was you being called up and going into, going into the army. So I, that's what I wrote. And, uh, and so, it, look, it's, it's a bit of a buzz. I think it probably, um, the bigger buzz would have been for John Schumann to be able to go to the Australian-Vietnam uh, War Memorial and see his lyrics up on, uh, on the wall, you know, and someone called out contact and the, and the guy behind me swore we hooked in hooked in there for hours. I think there's there's half a verse there. You know, and I, that's pretty good. But, but um, I don't know. Uh, it's such a great song anyway, you know, whether it's about me or anybody else. It was sort of interesting. And was Smiley your nickname or that was no. just something he attached to you? Yeah, he just attached it because I, I guess I was always smiling in those days. Uh. Well, in one of the songs that you do with the Playboys, there's a bit of a, oh, I suppose, an interlude in, in the middle of the song. And one of the guitarists, I think it's a guitarist, but he calls you Paddles. Yeah. Was that- oh, yes, I know the one you mean too. Uh, uh, I, I think that's Yaya. Okay, it could be Yaya, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a guitar solo. and Yeah, I was... Uh, <laughs> when I was... Before I was ever a singer, you know, much... We, we'd go down to the beach with a couple of mates uh, down along Rosebud or somewhere like that in Melbourne. And, and one of the guys, well, we all decided to have nicknames. And, and one, of the, one of the guys, Darren, said, said, I know, I've got a good nickname for you. Rowboats. No, paddles. Paddle boat. Because <laughs> he'd seen these people paddling those paddle boat things. So that's sort of... And then... Later on, somebody said, do you have any nicknames? And I said, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, somebody called me Paddles at one stage, not thinking that it would ever be published, and it was published everywhere, and I went, oh, no, surely I could have said Killer or, or you know, but Paddles? Oh, dear. <laughs> it's very cute. Well, Smiley obviously was a song we just spoke about that was written about you, but also um, there was another, I suppose, cover song of the Norman and they uh, Donna Gay rehashed it as Normie. Yeah. That's, just, a, that's a great fun song. I just spent a night with Donna and her husband just, she lives on the Gold Coast Normie. She was a cute little 15 year old. You know at age 15 she went to Vietnam wow. uh, as, as a singer. I think Maureen Elkner was also around about the same age. You know they went to Vietnam to entertain the troops at age 15. That's way too young you know. Way too young. Anyway they um, uh, yeah, Donna, Donna had a, 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 bit, a, a lot of success with that. She also, I think, did a cover of These Boots Were Made For Walking too. Um, and, and the kids loved her because she dressed like them and sung like them and she had the sa- same, uh, like publicly had the same heroes that they had. So they just 
they identified with them. Unreal, Normie. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Much appreciated. My pleasure. We'll finish this episode with Normie's song, Missing in Action. Thanks for the music, Normie. And more importantly, thank you for your service and commitment to Australia. He's not the same who went away last year Gone is the boy in place of man Not far away it's he His eyes told stories all about the fear and sweat and pain And all the lives of his young mates That politics flushed down the drain The enemy at home worse than the foe he fought back there Loss and grief, they didn't seem to care. So he went missing in action from the time he got back home. When he got off of that freedom bird, he could feel it coming on. Missing in action and feeling all alone. Nobody understood. He never thought they ever would. So he packed his cruiser. Hit the road to leave it all behind Headed northward out on Highway 1 To find some peace of mind Capricorn was in his sights Where the weather was warm and dry The northern sunny sentry shining From his home up in the sky Well he felt the anguish fall away A comfort he'd not known Since the comfort that he'd felt when he was all those miles from home Drop the ammo belt and clear the gun Safe to take off the old bush hat Through the pearly gates into the safety They call Nui Dad Yes, he went missing in action From the time he got back home When he got up off that freedom bird He could feel it coming on Missing in action and feeling all alone Nobody understood He never thought they ever would Not even giving those he cared about a hint of his address Thirty years or more have passed and time can heal a lot of fears So he said he's caused the places south and hid away the tears As he climbed aboard his Harley, gave a rev and dropped away the clutch He wondered how that girl of 69 might have changed that much when he arrived back in his small hometown And turned into the drive He saw her running down into his arms So glad he was still alive 
for he'd been missing in action from the time he got back home. When he got up off that freedom bird, he could feel it coming on. Missing in action and feeling all alone. Nobody understood. He never thought they ever would. Now he's found the love he longed for when he came back from that land. If he only knew it was always there, that love was near at hand. But strange things cloud your thinking when you've been through what he had. All he needed was a loving heart to wipe away the sand. Yes, he went missing in action from the time he got back home. When he got up off that freedom bird, he could feel it coming on. Missing in action and feeling all alone. Nobody understood. He never thought they ever would. Missing in action. Glad to be back home. Yes, he went missing in action. So glad to be back home. Missing in action. Glad to be back home. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I've got something to tell you About a place that I've been to And now, now I know The world is so much wider Than I knew And I wanna let you know You gotta go away, your fears You gotta get down here The weather is so Just stop and stare in the shower.